Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians. And I do very much appreciate your pastor's friendship. And I can't be friends with people that are sensitive. You know what I mean? It, I mean, I'll, I can love you in Christ's name. I just don't want to be around you. Which is why I like Brother Marshall. Man, it's so good to be here with you. What a great church. What a great opportunity to preach here. I, um, I, I met this church years ago. Uh, Brother Saul was such a blessing. And Brother Marshall now, what an amazing man of God God has given you to be your pastor. And it's good to be here with Brother Knox. It's always uh, humbling to preach in the same meeting with Brother Knox, but I'm always encouraged by it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Get 2 Corinthians 2 and Job 32. 2 Corinthians 2 and Job 32. Are you all glad to be here? Amen. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't at all sure what I was going to preach this morning, but when I looked out and I saw all of the young people in this room, I completely changed the direction of what I wanted to do. I'll try to do more preaching tomorrow night. This morning, I want to I teach you some things that I hope will help you in the light of some things that are going on in the Christian world and especially in fundamentalism. There are basically two kinds of Christians today. And I'm talking about born-again people. I'm talking about evangelicals. You know, evangelical that just means you believe the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are two groups in, just two, in what we call modern evangelicalism or modern Christianity. And, you know, you have heard me speak before, many of you, that all of Christianity is divided into four groups, all based on authority. The first group is traditional Christianity. That's Roman Catholicism and the, the mainline Protestant denominations. And they have dueling authorities, the Word of God and tradition. And if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their tradition, their tradition overrules the Word of God. You all know that, right? The second group is charismatic Christianity, and they have dueling authorities, the Word of God and experience. And if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their experience, their experience will always overrule the Word of God. The third group is modern evangelical Christianity, and that has dueling authorities, and it's the Word of God and scholarship. And if there's ever a conflict between their scholarship and the Word of God, their scholarship will always overrule the Word of God, as evidenced by the footnote that says this verse is not found in the best manuscript. Most scholars believe that this is not supposed to be in your Bible. Things like that. And then the fourth group would be us. We're just Bible believers. Some of you are old enough to remember the, the, the Jerry Falwell thing, God said it, I believe it, and that said it. Y'all remember that? That's just not a true statement. God said it and that settles it whether I believe it or not. Amen. And the, the idea is if I believe if I don't believe in gravity, I, I, I don't float away. My belief in gravity says nothing about gravity, but especially if I go up high, it'll say a whole lot about me. Right. And so in all of Christianity, those, there are those four groups. But in evangelical Christianity, there are only two. And so let's look at this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and look at verse 17. The Bible says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, we speak we in Christ. 
Two different groups in this text. Lord, help us as we study this passage, as we look at some other things outside of this text. Lord, please help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see the two groups. There are those who speak the Word of God in sincerity, and there are those who corrupt the Word of God. Those are the two groups. You say, how can a saved person corrupt the Word of God? Well, they do it every, every time they stand up and preach. Why? It's because of the way that they are taught. And so, young people, I want you to think about a couple of things today. You old people can go to sleep. I really don't care about you today. I'm going to talk to the young people. So I want you to think about a couple of terms. And the whole first part of my message, we're going to be defining some stuff. And I want you to think about pre-critical and post-critical. Pre-critical thinking and post-critical thinking. Pre-critical thinking is the way that everybody thought before, let's say, 1700, the year 1700 A.D. Everybody pretty much thought the same way. After that is post-critical, everything changed. So through the Enlightenment and through those about 200 years of the, the destroying of truth, now people are taught and they think differently. And we have all been affected by that thinking. This is something that we need to recognize is how we have been influenced by the culture, right? So I, I like to use this example. I, I think I, I used it here one time, but one time I, I walked into my wife's office. She's the church secretary, and I, I heard this conversation. I heard her end of it, and then she gave me the full thing. Somebody called and said, do you all pay electric bills? And my wife said, we pay ours. And so... I, I, I do that on purpose. I tell that story on purpose because it reveals how you have been influenced, whether or not you have been influenced in your thinking. Where did we ever get the idea that it's the church's responsibility to pay somebody's electric bill? That's socialism. See, Paul's was completely opposite of that. Now, I, I will demonstrate my own worldliness. When I was a kid, there was a, a comedian named uh, Steve Martin, and he had cheers, like what makes the grass grow, blood, blood, blood. He had another one that, that, the, that he liked. It was called Die, You Gravy-Sucking Pigs. That was a cheer that he would do, which is actually biblical. Because Paul said, if a man would not work, neither should he eat. What happens if you don't eat? Can, can, we, can I ask that again? Young people, what happens if you don't eat? You die. So what was Paul saying? If somebody doesn't work, die, you gravy-sucking pig. You see, the reason that's offensive to us is we have sat under too many preachers and teachers who have corrupted the Word of God and thereby... They have corrupted our minds and our thinking. And so there, there's a pre-critical mode of thinking, and there's a post-critical mode of thinking. The post-critical mode of thinking was influenced by a man who lived in early pre-critical times, and you have heard his name, Adamantius Origen. How many of you have heard of Origen? Public enemy number one of Bible-believing Christians. His life's verse that defined his thinking is found in the next chapter. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. 
And from that, he came up with this idea that the words of Scripture can hurt people. It's the ideas of Scripture or the allegory, the spiritual story behind the text that is important. So the words aren't important. That is the thinking that has influenced all post-critical thinking. There are zero modern evangelical preachers who believe every word of God has been preserved. They, they don't exist. They do. Please understand this. They do not exist. So one of the things that I'm trying to do in our ministry about the history of the English Bible or Baptist history, all the things that God's called me to do, one of the things I'm trying to do is change my tone. So I kind of came up under Bobby Knight, right? And coaches aren't allowed to hit kids anymore. And honestly, it was better then. I came up under the leather-lunged preaching where everybody called everybody else all kinds of names and all that stuff. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so what's happened, because today, honestly, people are soft, that kind of approach, it's simply not effective to that generation. So like I was talking about a guy that is attacking the King James, and I said, that guy needs man camp. Because you've ever heard him talk, he's just soft. And let me tell you, by calling his name and saying that, that actually undermined my message to the people that I was trying to reach. Now, it shouldn't be that. If that bothers you, then you don't understand the problem with our culture. Man, I was listening to, I, I put on a playlist Sunday morning, and I, I don't listen to Christian radio or whatever. I, I just don't, but I put on this playlist of modern Christian music. And, man, the first three songs, the guys all sang like this. Oh, Jesus, be my friend. I just love you. And honestly, that tone... I wanted to lay on the floor and start flopping around. Why? Because the guy needs man camp. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? There's a softness to the culture. Well, the problem is my calling from God is not to address the softness of the culture. It's to preach the word of God and, and try not to destroy my opportunity to have influence because of my acerbic personality. Right? And so, now... Y'all like that, you're going to get mad at me here. Okay, but that's okay. I was never popular. You will never persuade me that John MacArthur is a Satanist. You're not going to persuade me of that. I think he's a man of God. I think he is an evangelical preacher that preaches the gospel. So why does John MacArthur disagree with me and us on the Bible issue? That's what has to be answered. And the reason is, he has a post-critical understanding of the Bible and Bible preservation, as opposed to a pre-critical understanding. See, the reason that all modern, the people who use all modern Bible translations and the people who have bought into that philosophy, they don't believe they're corrupting anything. The more conservative believe they're trying, they're attempting to recover what God actually said. That's what they believe. They're not trying to corrupt anything. They're trying to help us and fix it. But what they end up doing 
is corrupting the word of God. Why? Because they have a purely... Hey, young people, listen to this. It's so important. They have a purely secular understanding. They have a purely secular approach, methodology, to the translation and preservation of the Scriptures. See, we believe that the Word of God... Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It's not like Shakespeare. It's not like Homer. Not Homer Simpson. Different. It's not like that. It's different. So what we're going to look at today is is there two subjects. We have to define some terms because we have, sometimes we don't have a clear understanding of some specific terms. When the enemies come at us, they use our lack of understanding against us. All right, so we're going to define some terms, and then I'm going to answer this question, Lord willing. Why not update the King James Bible? Why not update the King James Bible? This is the, this is the question that you young people are being asked right now. Now, some of you old guys, you, we say, well, I'm not changing. That's not an answer. That, that doesn't help. The other thing is, you'll say, well, I had to answer these questions when I was young, and I didn't get moved. Well, good for you. You didn't have the Internet. And our young people are being inundated with challenges. The other problem is many of the answers that we are giving on this subject are about 60 years old. And the enemies of our position, because they cannot answer those answers... They can't overcome those answers. They've come up with new challenges and new questions. That means we have to update our answers and our approach to the subject. Is that fair? And folks, is it true that independent Baptists can sometimes be a little arrogant? Is that true? You're thinking, you're the one wearing the green jacket. I didn't know I was preaching this morning. Very important that we get this. Here's the attitude that we can have. If I haven't heard it before, it can't be important. Is that true? Well, if my teacher, Dr. So-and-so, didn't say it, it must not be true. And so let's just humble ourselves a little bit and understand that we are in a battle. Friends of mine have turned against the King James Bible and are becoming evangelists for the modern translations. And they're starting, they're attacking us on some of the things that I want to talk to you about today. So, we're going to have to go fast. If you're going to try and take notes, it might not work. You can get the recording of this and try and get it back. So, what are some terms that we need to understand? Go to Job Job 32.8. Job 32.8. So, the first word is inspiration. We're going to look at four words. Inspiration, inscripturation, preservation, and translation. All right, so what is inspiration? One of the challenges that we have, because I believe God preserved his word in the, English, in the English language, in the King James Bible, because I believe that, people will often say, so then you believe the translators were inspired. How many of you have ever heard that, that attack? Now, I'm trying to be nice, but, okay, I will, I will be nice. I, what I want to say is dumb people ask that question, but that wouldn't be nice, so I'm not going to say that. Um, The reason people say that is they believe that the original Bible writers were inspired. 
when what the Bible says is all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, Brother Knox, you're an author. All right, you understand language. Uh, are you Scripture? No. Now, we are, we are an epistle, right? You know what Paul called us as we act out? That's a metaphor. That's a simile. Scripture, very simple. Do you know what Scripture is? It's Scripture. Right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the men were not inspired. The words were inspired. Those men, see, the inspiration of God can have no error. Those men were full of error. And isn't God good? He revealed those errors to us so we wouldn't worship the men. And so God gave us his words in a very specific way. The law of first mention, I know that you all know this, is the first time something is mentioned in Scripture. God gives us information about that that will carry through. Now, I saw James White after he was commenting on a debate on the King James where the, the, the debater had mentioned the law of first mention. He mocked it. Well, of course he would mock it. The, this subject only matters if the words matter. The words don't matter to James White. And so why would the law of first mention in the way that word is used for the first time, why would that matter to James White? That shouldn't be a form of argument that should hurt us. It should strengthen us. Well, of course you don't believe that. Of course you don't believe that because the words don't matter to you. You can, you can shout sola scriptura all you want. So let's look at Job 32.8. Let's get our definition of inspiration. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So what is inspiration? Inspiration is God giving understanding to the spirit and mind of man, and he does that through words. That's what inspiration is. God breathing out, spiring in his words to those men. That's what inspiration is. It's, it's not complicated. It's miraculous, but it's not complicated. And he gave them the exact words he wanted them to have. How many of you believe that? Okay, our second word is inscripturation. Go to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36. Now, I am invited to churches to teach on these things because, honestly, I'm more educated than you. And there are some things in the text that are very difficult to understand. And on your own, this would be very difficult for you. One of the things, and so I'm here to help you. So one of the things that we, are, that, that we are challenged by, like on the History Channel, is it was an oral, it was an oral uh, a tradition that was passed down and passed down. And of course, like the telephone game, it's going to be changed. So we don't know that we have actually the words that were said. And I, I, I forgot this on the inspiration. Remember what the Bible says. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy, man of God, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's inspiration. Okay? But how do we know? So it's explained in this text, and I'm going to read it slowly because it's difficult. All right? So go to verse 15, Jeremiah chapter 36 and verse 15. And they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch, he's the scribe that, that wrote Jeremiah's words. Uh, so Baruch, Baruch read it. In their ears. Now it came to pass when they had heard all the words, they were afraid both one and another, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. 
And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Now, here's the difficult part. I'm going to read it slowly for you. Okay? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. <laughs> how many of you are thankful I'm here to explain that to you? I know, some of you are thinking, What a jerk! Who's this guy? You need to understand, that is the approach of Bible teachers. Boy, I am so important without me. You could never... What this really ought to say... Man, I'm so glad I met you. If I hadn't met you, I'd never know what the Bible means. Is that ridiculous? See, again, that's because we have two different approaches to the Word of God. Some are going to corrupt the Word of God. Some are going to speak the words of Christ out of sincerity. I really believe what I'm saying here. I really believe this. So the inscripturation is the supernatural process where God helped the scribe write down all the words that the prophet spoke. Is that what the text says? Are those the words that are in it? Yes. All. Look at verse, he had to do it again, verse 32. Then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah. What does it say? What's that next word? You know what all means, right? All means all, and that's all that all means. Okay, it says he wrote all the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words. That's inscripturation. The next word is preservation. We have to go there. Psalm 12. You all know this passage. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. I saw a guy named Jeff Riddle. He's a Calvinistic Baptist pastor, debate James White. And he said to, to... Dr. White, he said, I think Dr. White would be happy if I had a little less faith. That was great. It was a good statement. So, Revelation, I'm sorry, Psalm 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. That's inspiration, right? As silver tried in a furnace of fire, purified seven times. That purified seven times, that's perfection. Verse 7, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So inspiration is God giving his mind to the mind of man through words. Inscripturation is having those words written down on paper. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, that paper that they were written on, it was papyrus. Papyrus is just grass. You all know that, right? But Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. God knew that his words would last longer than what they were written on. That's preservation. Right. It's just like in Jeremiah, those words were burned. The words that God gave Jeremiah were burned. Here's the good news. God remembered what he wrote. Do you see what I'm talking about? A faithful view versus a faithless view. We just believe that God inspired his word. And what is the definition of preservation? It's the supernatural process whereby God keeps his words pure from corruption. He keeps corruption from entering into his word. That's what preservation is. That's what we believe. That's the Christian view. And just so you know, that's not new. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, they would have killed us, but this statement was good. The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 1, section 8, it says that God has kept his word pure in all ages. He's kept his word pure in all ages. The first London Baptist Confession of 1689, it has that same statement. The Philadelphia Baptist Confession of Faith, it has that same statement. This is not a new idea, people. We are not the ones who changed. 
And then the last is, is translation. Translation. Well, it's not possible to accurately translate the Bible. Well, that's only said by people who don't understand language. The greatest Greek scholars, the greatest uh, Hebrew scholars, the greatest English scholars, do you know what they say? That the English reads better than the Greek. That the English reads better than the Hebrew. That's what the, that's what the lost scholars say. So whenever somebody tries to diminish our Bible, all that does is demonstrate their ignorance, not ours. Not ours. When Adam Nicholson wrote a great book called God's Secretaries, I don't even know if this guy's saved, but he said when the, the English of the King James Bible, it was created to translate the Bible. So that when you're reading the Old Testament English, you are actually reading the Hebrew. When you're reading the New Testament in English, you are actually reading the Greek. That English was created to communicate the Bible. It's not Elizabethan English, it's Bible English. When someone tells you you're reading Elizabethan English, that's only someone who's ignorant of the English language and the history of the development of the English language. We're not the dumb ones. Very important that we get that. Here's another problem with translation and inspiration. So I don't speak Spanish. I had to ask somebody this for this illustration. So the word dog in Spanish is perro. Anybody speak Spanish? Am I doing okay on that? Okay, perro. So you got this dog that comes from Mexico. Legally, of course. This dog comes from Mexico. And I call him, he's a perro. I call him a dog. Does he cease to be a perro? I know some of you are going... It's so dumb, it's hard to get your head around. And this is the same argument against translation of the Bible into English. As if it ceases to be the Word of God when it's conveyed into another language, which is what translation is. Here's another place where we have been influenced by post-critical thinking. Some people will say, the Bible needs to be translated into every language on earth. Well, that's a great thought. It's just not reality. First of all, God never promised to give his word in every language on earth. He never promised that. Secondly, the only people who would say that are people who are ignorant of language and who have been influenced by multiculturalism. What is multiculturalism? It's the idea that all cultures are equally valid. And I like what the one guy said. In one culture, they say, love your neighbor. In another culture, they say, eat your neighbor. Those are not equal, right? And if all cultures are equal, why do we need to put a wall on the southern border? Apparently, there are a lot of people that think our culture is better than the culture they're coming from, right? Here's the other problem. The only way you can translate the Bible into another language is if that receptor language, the language you're trading it into, has the words to communicate the words of Scripture. Not every language can do that. English can. Well, you believe the Bible's... Uh, preserved in English in the King James Bible, where is it in the other languages? Okay, you're ready for this? You're going to want to write this down. I don't speak any other languages. I don't know. It's impossible for anybody to know everything. I don't know, but I do know he's preserved it in the English language right here. So that's translation. It is the process. So how, do you, how can I believe that my words are inspired? If we go back to our definition. The words were inspired, not the men. They, 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 that's inspiration. Inscripturation, they were written down. 
preservation, God kept them. In the Old Testament, he used the Levitical priesthood. In the New Testament, he used the priesthood of the believer. And those words were preserved. And they have been accurately translated into English. So just as a paro, when you call him a dog, is the same thing. It hasn't changed. When you take the one language and put it into another, they are still the inspired words of God. All right? So there's, there's our definition. Our definitions. Inspiration, inscripturation, preservation, and translation. So based on that, with that as our foundation, why can't we update the King James? Just a couple of points. The first point is practical reasons. Practical reasons. It's been done many times before. I wrote down a list while Brother Matt was preaching. I should have been listening, but I was writing down a couple of things. I listened to much of it. It was wonderful. Changed my life. Um, It actually was very good. So, Frederick Scrivener, probably the greatest textual critic and expert on the history of the English Bible to live. He did his own revision of the King James in 1873 called the Cambridge Paragraph Bible. Nobody wanted it. So if his revision isn't good enough, who's going to do it today? But not only that, you could have the diacritical edition of 1886 by Rufus Wendell. You can have the five-volume Dove's Press Bible that came out in 1971, I think. You can have the Noah Webster version. Who knows English better than Noah Webster of 1833? Nobody wanted it. How about the modern King James Bible of 1971? What about the new King James Bible of 1967? What about the, that, that, I'm sorry, the, uh, the new Schofield Bible of 1967? What about the new King James, 79 through 82? What about the new authorized version that came out? It was redone again in 1992. What about David Norton's new Cambridge Bible? He corrected Scrivener's Bible for Cambridge in 2005. If, if none of those Bibles who, that have been a revision of the King James Bible were accepted, why would yours be? Yeah. Do you see our problem? So, number one, it's been done and it's failed. Number two, it's still under practical. Number two, it's just not necessary. Well, what about the archaic words? What about the archaic words? The definition of an archaic word is a word that is no longer in use. That's what archaic means. All right? How many of you kind of believe that we are, we're kind of, we King James people are kind of a minority? How many of you, you feel that way? Well, there was a survey done recently of people who read the Bible. 55% of them read the King James Bible. Now, I know you guys haven't learned math yet. That's, that's the majority. That means we're not in the minority. And notice the way the question was, was asked of people who read the Bible. So apparently making the Bible easier to read doesn't cause people to read it. You can't argue with that. That's just a fact. So it's not necessary. What about those archaic words? If the majority of people reading the Bible read the King James Bible, they're reading words that some people deem archaic, but if they're being read by the majority of the people, that means they're still in use, which by definition, by definition means they're not archaic. Right. Am I going too fast for you? Are you all doing okay? Are you keeping up with this? They are not archaic. Now, some of them are hard to understand. There's one word that's called collops. Collops. I have intentionally not looked that word up so that I can say, I don't know what collops means. But, I think it's in here. Is it in there? What does it mean? 
Oh, I, yeah, I don't want to know. So I can honestly say I don't want to know. So why doesn't that shatter my faith? Man, can I live by every word of God? Well, when I get to that word, I'll look it up. Amen? I come across words almost every day that I don't know what they mean. My wife would say that's called pay attention. I don't know what that means. So what do you do with those hard words? You get a book like this or Lawrence Vance's book, Archaic Words in the Authorized Version, and you look them up. And I really recommend that you young people get a, a, a wide margin Bible and just write those definitions in the margin. And then you've got them and you learn them. There's just not that many words. Some, the, 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 the number of words is depending on who is writing on it is either 300 or 600. All of us can learn 600 words. Five-year-olds know that many words. So, practical. Number one, it's been tried and failed. Number two, it's just not necessary. And then number three, who's going to translate it? Who's going to publish it? And who's going to buy it? Nobody. The only people that would want it are people who are already reading the King James but want one that's easier to read. Do you understand what a small group that is? So when our enemies use this argument, I had a guy, This is he taught at a school, I know him, he had a podcast and really undermined the King James. And I said this to him, I'll call him Joe, his name's not Joe. I said, Job, Joe, you're not a dumb guy. And he said, well, thanks. I said, you're not a dumb guy, but your arguments are so dumb, I don't think you believe them. That's why I don't trust you on this. There is no way those arguments that you put out on your podcast are persuasive to you. You just want to change your Bible. Just say that. Just be honest about it. So practical, practical. Let's look at technical, technical. Are you all doing okay? Some technical reasons why it can't be done. Um, the influence of the historical critical philosophy on all areas of life. So think about this. In 1867, Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital, and now that completely changed the way people think about economics. People now actually believe it's the government's responsibility to pay for your drugs. I mean, senior citizens and in independent Baptist churches, that's what they believe. Now, let's be honest, the government did promise to do that. You've paid into Social Security and Medicare, and so you're expecting that to come. It's a little bit more complicated than what I'm saying. But the idea that we ever allowed that system to happen is the influence of Marxism. Are you all following me on this? What about science? Charles Darwin in 1859 wrote The Origin of the Species. And and so the science of textual criticism has been influenced by the secular view. In other words, the Westminster Confession of Faith, they believed that God's word had been kept pure in all ages. So when our King James translators revised the 1602 bishops consulting the original languages, they believed that God had supernaturally preserved his word and that they were actually handling the pure words of God. That's what they believed. And even though they were Anglicans, they would have died over that. Many did. Do you understand what I'm saying right here? No modern translator believes that. Because of the change in science. Then, paleography. I don't have time to go into this, but what paleography is, it's the way that you date a manuscript. A manuscript is a handwritten copy. The way that you date a manuscript is by the style of writing. 
Okay, my writing, if somebody wanted to, to describe it, it's called hieroglyphics. Just no one can read it. But so the data manuscript based on the, the style of writing. The person that, that defined modern paleography is a man named Constantine von Tischendorf. He's the guy that discovered Codex Sinaiticus. He's also the guy that transcribed Codex Ephremi Rescriptus. So there are four great unseals. These are written in capital letters. This is the basis of the modern text. It's Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus, and Codex Rescriptus, uh, Ephremi Rescriptus. It's called Rescriptus because it was a palimpsest. So that's a leather, a leather page that had the scriptures written on it, and they were scraped off. And these, these Ephraim, these notes of Ephraim were written over it. And so they were able to find underneath there uh, some texts of the scriptures, but it was one of these unseals. Alexandrian disagrees with our Bible in many places. So Tischendorf is the guy that now has defined what paleography is. And so if you go to college and you learn how to deal with ancient manuscripts, you learn how to read them, you learn how to, how to collate them into a text... Well, how are, what manuscripts are, going to, are you going to use and why? There's no one today being trained the way that the King James translators were trained. This is the influence of higher criticism on all modern education, all of it. So who is going to do the translation? And then what text are they going to use? The problem that we have is none of our Bible colleges actually teach the history of the Greek text. I was given a Textus Receptus when I was in Bible college, and I was told this is what my Bible was translated from. When actually that, that Bible, that Textus Receptus from Trinitarian Bible Society, it was produced by Frederick Scrivener. Remember we talked about him with his paragraph Bible? When Cambridge asked him to show them when the 1881 translation of the Bible, the revised version, came out, the Cambridge University asked him, show us where the revised version differs from the Greek text that underlies the New Testament of the King James Bible. He had a problem. Nobody knows what text they used. There was no record of it. So he chose Beza, Theodore Beza's 1598 Greek text, because that would have been the latest and greatest Greek text when the King James translators were making their translation. But in his text, he identified in bold all of these places where the authorized version differs from Beza's 1598 text. He explains all that in an introduction. In the appendix, he identifies by an asterisk where the King James translators... So in the text, he'll put an asterisk. In the, uh, the appendix, he identifies where that asterisk came from, or what, what it's for. These are places, he said, where the King James translators relied on an older Greek text in their translation. And then he lists about 30 different Greek texts. What's a text? A manuscript is an individual copy. A text is where you compare all of those copies... So you have 30 copies of the Gospel of John, and you compare them, and then you choose one reading. So a text is one reading of many manuscripts. The King James translators used about 30. Understand, what I just told you is not taught in any Bible college that I know of. So now, 
even conservative Christians. So I, I had my Greek text, and there were places where my Greek text differed from the King James Bible. I was a Bible believer, so I didn't know how to reconcile it, but I trusted my Bible. Most of these young men are taught to trust their Greek text, and here's what they think. They're not taught about the differences in Bible college. When they discover them, well, there's a mistake the King James translators made. Why? Because that is ignorance of the history of their Greek text. And I don't know of one Bible college in America that teaches what I just said to you. And I don't have the book with me, but I, could, I, have, a, I have a copy of the book that Scrivener produced with his introduction, with his appendices, and with his footnotes, with his bold, with his asterisks. And here's what the Trinitarian Bible Society did. They took that base Greek text, removed the bold, removed the introduction, removed the footnotes, removed the appendix, and people think that's their Bible. And they don't know that their Greek text is 250 years newer than their Bible. They think that's where their Bible came from. So technically, who's going to do the translation? Are are they going to trust what God gave them? And then I, I could spend a whole lot more time on the technical, but just please understand The problems right there. So practical, technical, but what about spiritual? Jesus said that we're going to under, or Paul said we're going to understand the Bible by comparing spiritual things with what? Spiritual. And then Jesus said, John 663, the words that I speak unto you, their spirit and their life. If you don't believe that these words are spiritually given and spiritually preserved, then you don't know what you're changing. How many of you ever worked on a car and you thought you did it right? But you didn't know you had changed something. Big problem. Sometimes somebody will change an engine in a car and not understand that the computer in the car won't work with that engine. They don't know what they changed. The old farmer said, before you tear down a fence, find out why it was put there in the first place. God has has supernaturally influenced our Bible. Were the translators inspired? They didn't need to be. Listen to what God did. God ordered the Greek manuscripts to come to Europe at a specific time, 1453. That's when Constantinople fell, the Ottoman Empire conquered, the Byzantine Empire, those Greek Orthodox priests who had preserved the Antiochian text. They fled into Europe, and a man named Lorenzo Valla, he was the first man in the West to study the Bible and the original languages since the early church, and he learned from those Greeks. He makes these annotations on the Scripture, 2,000 annotations on the Scriptures. And there are places where the Vulgate disagreed with the Greek text. And Desiderius Erasmus found that in 1505, and he actually published it. It was a handwritten manuscript. He published it, and that caused him to want to do the same thing. So he produced a Greek New Testament, but he wasn't trying to produce a Greek New Testament. He was trying to correct the Latin. So in his 1516 Greek text, or 1516 New Testament, there's Latin on this side, Greek on this side, so that he could demonstrate why he was making the changes in the Latin. All of that type of thinking, it affected everything. In 1625... Cyril of Alexandria, he had become the the patriarch of Constantinople. He sent a Greek text to King James, the King James I of our King James Bible. He sent it, but do you know what God did? God killed King James before that text got there. And it got to Charles I. 
But Charles I had other problems. Charles I was King James' son. His main problem was a guy named uh, Cromwell. His second problem was he lost his head. So then you have the 14 years of the, of the, the glorious revolution and the, what's called the interregnum, the place between the two kings. You have the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II. Charles II becomes the king. He's broke. He's got lots of problems. Codex Alexandrinus is the first text that anyone knew anything about that agreed with the Alexandrian text. That was a major Bible. Understand this, and I've got to be done. But our translators understood all of the disputed passages. They weren't a surprise to them. But this manuscript would have caused them a problem because they did want the latest and greatest. God didn't allow that text to be used until the late 1600s, but there was not a Greek text produced using only those texts until 1831. So our Bible and the original languages that agree with our Bible stood solid from 1611 all the way through 1831. But in 1831, the churches didn't care about it. In 1881, when they came out with a revised version, no one wanted it. In 1901, when they came out with the American Standard Version, no one wanted it. So in the 1920s and 30s, they changed the name of our Bible from the authorized version to the King James Version. It's just a version. It took all the way into the 20th century before all of this Bible babble made its way into the churches. And yet we're the ones that are called schismatics. We're the ones that people are saying have some strange new ideas when we simply believe the Bible that God gave us. I'm going to finish with this one example. I I have a whole message on the spiritual side of this, but let me just give you one illustration of it. You know that up until Augustine, around 400 AD, all of the teachers believed in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ. All of them did. You know, there were heretics, of course, but as far as the mainline teaching, everyone believed in that. He comes along, the Roman Empire is falling, the, the Visigoths are coming in, and so he writes the city of God. And he said, well, there's a spiritual empire and there's a physical empire. And, and so now the idea of Jesus Christ establishing a thousand-year kingdom, he started teaching, well, we're actually living in that thousand-year kingdom. Why? Because he believed in the allegorical interpretation of Origen from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. So all of those passages about the millennium, that's all spiritual. It's not actually a literal thousand years. Okay? So now, we're going hundreds of years. We're going a thousand years. And the only people that believed in a premillennial return of Jesus Christ, they were accused of being Kiliasts, people who believed in a thousand years, and they would be put to death. That was always considered an extreme position. But the people that we look to in our trail of blood, that's one of the things that they believed in a premillennial return of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, King James Bible comes out. The next thing you know, there is an explosion of premillennialism. Why? Well, the King James translators were all premillennialists. No, they were amillennialists. They didn't believe in the millennium. They probably weren't even saved. What happened? They believed that God had kept his words pure. They believed that it was their job to refine the other six English translations that God had given that the king had told them to use. Rule one, 
use the bishops. Rule, rule 14, where the bishops doesn't agree well with the original, use Tyndale, Matthews, Coverdale, White Church. That would be the Great Bible, uh, um, the Geneva Bible, and, and, the, and the bishops. So all, all six of those are Bibles revision of that. They believed that God had kept his word pure in the original languages and that God had worked through those other English translations and their job was to combine those and produce the greatest translation that had ever been made. That's what they believed. They believed in the purity of the words. So what did they do? They translated certain words and phrases in a very consistent way. Words like the day of the Lord. That day, a woman in travail. And if you study those words, do you know what you're going to be? You're going to be a premillennialist. See, that's the spiritual part of our translation. Why is premillennialism being cast away and Reformed theology rising? Because people no longer study the words. They do word studies. They don't allow the word of God to teach them. They allow lost lexicographers, lost people who write dictionaries to tell them what their Bible means. But Jesus said, there's one that's going to judge you at the last day. The words that I speak unto you, that means they're going to be in existence. Amen? So why not update the King James Bible practically? Who's going to do it? Who's going to publish it? Who's going to buy it? It's just not necessary, and the words, by definition, are not archaic. Technically, where are we going to find the people that will be trained to do it? What manuscripts are they going to use? How are they going to know the history of their text when it's not being taught? And then spiritually, we need to recognize the amazing gift that God gave us in the English language. That is not being taught in any of the Bible colleges. They're taught to look past this to the original languages. So everything that I just said, it's just not being taught. So, Brother Jim, you think that just because you say it, it needs to be taught? No, no, it doesn't have anything to do with me. It needs to be taught because it's true, and it helps people to have confidence in the Bible they hold in their hands. Amen? Thank you. Preacher.